0: Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at CandeoChurch.com. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. Happy last week of summer. It's kind of crazy. (laughs) It's August 13th. School starts in like a week. It's wild. Uh, Hey, it is great to be with you this morning. If we have not met, my name is Stephen Jones. I'm one of the pastors here in Church Planters for our church. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. If you haven't opened to Third John yet, go ahead and open there now. So when I was in fourth grade, our teacher did an interesting exercise. Uh, she had us divide into two groups. So on one side, half of us were on one side of the room, the other half were on the other side, and she gave all of us paper plates. And then she pulled out a ton of Oreos, Just so many Oreos. And it was like, oh my word, are we all gonna get Oreos? Well, the trick was on us, only half the room got Oreos. So she divides out all the Oreos to let's say the right half of the room and is just loading up like 10 Oreos on each kid's plate. On the left side of the room, I was on the right side, let's go. On the left side, they got zero Oreos, just none. And so it created this interesting social experiment for us in fourth grade. And the teacher just kind of stood there and watched. She didn't really give us any direction. She just stood there and watched. And the right side of the room, obviously we were pumped. We had 10 Oreos each. This was the greatest day of school in our lives. And honestly, we didn't care that the other half didn't have any Oreos. It was like, I'm sorry, guys, she ran out. I don't know what to tell you. Like, we have Oreos, you don't. But obviously the left side of the room, they're like, can we have a few? Like, can we get a couple Oreos, please? And it created this this social moment. And so eventually it was like, yeah, you can have one of my 10 Oreos. Here you go. Other side of the room, as I'm pounding nine. But the point of this entire exercise was for us to realize really what it was like being an American that we live in the most prosperous country in the most prosperous time of human history. And it was probably the first time in my life that I had ever realized this, ever had this kind of aha moment of like, whoa, this is really what it's like growing up in America, that we have so much prosperity relative to the rest of the world. And it created this question for us in fourth grade, what do you do with your prosperity? What do you do with it? And this is the question that I want you to wrestle with this morning. What do you do with your prosperity? Relative to the rest of the world, to the rest of human history, we are by far the most prosperous nation, the most prosperous people of all time. And how should we use that? What should we do in response To our prosperity. And this morning, we're going to see the life of a man who helps us understand how to leverage our prosperity, the unique opportunity that we have within our prosperity. And that man's name is Gaius. And Gaius is going to show us a lot about how to leverage our prosperity. So if you're looking at 3 John, let's meet this man named Gaius. Here's what John says, verse 1 The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, who I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you are prospering in every way and are in good health just as your whole life is going well. Now, right there, we get kind of an interesting prayer. John's praying for his prosperity, praying for his health. His life is already going well. And here John is praying hey, I'm praying that you'd continue to prosper. Now, why is that a unique prayer? Well, it's unique because we don't see many prayers like this in our Bibles, where you have one person praying directly for the prosperity of another person. And within an evangelical church, we kind of are aware of the prosperity gospel, the pitfalls of this false teaching that through Jesus, you're gonna get financially rich and always have good health. In fact, Cody talked about this false gospel last week. So our ears are kind of tuned to prosperity promises within our church. So what is up with this prayer that John is praying for Gaius? Why can John confidently pray for his prosperity? Well, two reasons, who he was and what he did with his prosperity. So who was Gaius? Look at verse three. For I was very glad when fellow believers came and testified to your fidelity to the truth and how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Why could John confidently pray for Gaius's prosperity? Well, he had fidelity to the truth. He knew God's commands. He knew God's truths and he was committed to them. He was unwavering in his commitment to God's truth, to scripture. And not only that, he lived by them right? It says you are fidelity fidelity to the truth and how you are walking in the truth. He not only was committed to God's truth, but his entire life was shaped by his convictions. Gaius was a man of conviction and character. Conviction, committed to God's truth, character, his entire life was shaped by God's truth. His decisions, his priorities, his aspirations. This is who Gaius was a man of high caliber, a man of integrity. But not only is that the reason why John could confidently pray for his prosperity, but how he used his prosperity. Look at verse five. Dear friend, you are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they are strangers. They have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God since they set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from pagans. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we can be co-workers with the truth. What was Gaius doing with his prosperity? He was supporting missionaries. That's how he was leveraging his resources. So here you have Gaius a man of integrity, a man of conviction, a man of character, leveraging his resources to support the advancement of the gospel. This is why John could pray for his prosperity. Even when his life is going well, I pray it would go better because I know who you are and I know what you do with your resources. You advance the gospel. This is who Gaius was. Now, I want to introduce a new category to you this morning, the category of gospel patron. Gaius was a gospel patron. Now, what is a gospel patron? Well, John Reinhardt, in his book, Gospel Patrons, defines it like this. He says, a gospel patron is someone who invests and is involved in the ministry of another to proclaim the gospel. A gospel patron is someone who invests and is involved in the ministry of another to proclaim the gospel. This is exactly who Gaius was. He has these missionaries coming into town, even strangers. He's lodging them, caring for them, sending them, and in that he is a gospel patron. Now, I, this morning what I wanna do is I wanna answer three questions of what it means to be a gospel patron from the life of Gaius. How was Gaius a gospel patron? Why was Gaius a gospel patron? And then what was the result of him being a gospel patron? So let's start with how was Gaius a gospel patron? Look back at verse five and six. Here's what it says. It says, dear friend, you are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they are strangers. They have testified to your love before the church you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So here Gaius is commended by John for how he is being faithful towards these missionaries. And what is he doing? How is he a gospel patron? He is sending them in a manner worthy of God. This is what it means to be a gospel patron, that you would send in a manner worthy of God. Well, what does it mean to send in a manner worthy of God? Well, it means first and foremost to supply their needs. Very simply, Gaius was supplying what they needed materially, financially, so that they could fulfill their mission. That's a simple kind of simply what he was doing. And that is how he was sending them in a manner worthy of God. These could have been clothing, it could have been food, it could have been other provisions, it would have definitely been financial means to make sure that they had what they needed to fulfill their mission, to make sure that they weren't distracted by their material, physical, financial needs, and it would draw them away from the mission that God was commissioning them on. So he was supplying their needs. But not only that, look what they say about him. Look back at verse 6. What did they testify to? It says they have testified to your love. Gaius wasn't just an impersonal missionary supplier. He wasn't just an outpost on the missionary journey and you'd stop and you'd get some food and then you'd go on your way. No, Gaius got involved in the lives of these missionaries. There was genuine love and encouragement and care for them. When a missionary stopped at Gaius' house, They didn't just get more food. They didn't just get more money. They got love and prayer and friendship. And what did they get as a result? A partner in the gospel. Here's the two dynamics of sending in a manner worthy of the Lord. Supplying their needs and supplying their souls. Supplying their physical needs, their financial needs, sacrificing so that they could fulfill their mission, but also getting involved, investing and being involved. What does this look like for us? Well, we are at a church where there is a lot of gospel goodbyes. What's a gospel goodbye? A gospel goodbye is when, for the sake of the gospel, we send out a missionary or church planter. And what happens? Well, gospel goodbyes hurt. Why? Because there is relationship between you and the ones you are sending, If you've been at Candeo for any length of time, you know what this feels like. You know what it's like to send someone out in a manner worthy of the Lord. And at Candeo, you are setting the pace in our network of churches of what it looks like to send in a manner worthy of the Lord. There hasn't been a single missionary or church planter that you've sent who hasn't been sent with everything that they need, but even more, All of the love and care and support you could imagine. I love telling people about you. I love saying that, hey, our family's gonna plant a church from the greatest church that you could be sent from. And we know that you are gonna sacrifice so much so that our physical and financial needs are met for our church plant. But what excites Natalie and I even more than that is that when we were set aside for church planting, and you know that we're leaving in two years, instead of relationally withdrawing from us, you relationally engage. It's like you doubled down on your relationship and care for us. We feel so loved and supported. And this is the same feeling that every single missionary or church planter from Candeo has felt. Not just have you supplied their needs, but you have relationally cared for them. There's love Sending in a manner worthy of the Lord means that gospel goodbyes hurt because there's real love, real friendship, genuine care. And it's not just genuine care and support on the front. It's ongoing through prayer and encouragements and visiting church plants and visiting missionaries, remembering birthdays. Candale, you are setting the pace and what it means to send in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so we want our gospel goodbyes to hurt. Why? Because it means there's real relationship there. We want our church plants and our missionary efforts to hurt. Why? Because there's real sacrifice where we're denying ourselves of certain things so that we can invest in the mission of God. That is what it means to send in a manner worthy of the Lord. Gaius was meeting their physical needs, their financial needs, but he was also caring for them, loving them, encouraging them. So that's how he was a gospel patron, why? Why was he a gospel patron? We'll look at verse seven, we see the motivation here. It says, since they set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from pagans. There's so many layers of motivation here to be a gospel patron. First, since they set out, Gaius was recognizing that those who set out were doing a very difficult thing. They're leaving homes, families, jobs, friends. Why? To set out for the sake of the name. This isn't to take away anything from the dignity and value of staying. We need people to stay to continue to send in a manner worthy of the Lord. But it is to acknowledge that to set out is a very hard thing. And Gaius wanted to honor that that task that they were embracing by sending them well. Well, Almost two years ago, we sent Mark and Amanda Jackson to South Asia from our church. Mark was an elder and they had served for seven years here, and we sent them off. And about seven or eight months ago, they had their first child while overseas, Samuel, and he's an amazing little child, beautiful, crawls around. Uh, he's Samuel L. Is it Samuel L. Jackson, is that his middle name? Anyways, uh, that's what I say. I forget what his real middle name is, but I kind of just blacked out, Samuel L. Jackson. But he's this beautiful child, but I just want you to think about how difficult it would be for them. Just the like practicalities of having a baby overseas. Amanda didn't have the support of her mom or siblings or friends during her pregnancy. They don't have in-laws that they can just call up and go on a date night. In fact, neither of their parents will get to meet Sam until November when he's almost a year old. Can we just acknowledge, that's a hard thing. That's a really hard thing the least we could do as gospel patrons is send them in a manner worthy of the Lord to honor the sacrifice and to acknowledge the difficult thing that they are doing as missionaries, to at least remember their birthdays, to pray for them regularly, to be invested and involved in their mission to proclaim Jesus. But it wasn't just the difficulty of the task that motivated Gaius, it was also ultimately the purpose of the task. Look at the purpose, verse seven. They set out for the sake of the name. For the sake of the name. What motivated Gaius as a gospel patron was ultimately the gospel. It was ultimately that the good news of Jesus would be proclaimed and advanced throughout the world. This is the ultimate motivation for gospel patronage. It's the ultimate motivation for our generosity. We can get excited about projects and people, but the ultimate thing that will motivate us is being captivated by the beauty of Jesus. To remember that we were once separated from God because of our sin, but Jesus went on the great missionary journey from heaven to come to redeem us so that we could be his people, And now as his people, God is inviting us to have the joy in participating in the good news going out so that others would see his glory, learn of his salvation. That's the motivation. That is the only motivation that will sustain and excite your vision to be a gospel patron, your vision to leverage all of your resources for the kingdom, This is what motivated Gaius. He wanted to see the gospel going out. This is what motivates the Jacksons to endure hardship on the mission field for the sake of the name. Will you embrace a vision to be a gospel patron for the sake of the name? Now remember who Gaius was. Why could John pray for his prosperity? Well, he was a man of character and conviction, and he leveraged his resources for the kingdom. Think about the character and conviction. He had fidelity to the truth, and he walked according to the truth. Gaius allowed his commitment to God's truth to shape all of his life, all of his decisions, all of his priorities. Let me just walk through some of the truths that we claim to have fidelity to. And I want us to think about the implications of what it would look like to walk according to those truths. So here's some things that we believe as Candeo Church. We believe that there is one God, that he's the eternal triune God of the Old Testament and New Testament. We believe that humanity's greatest problem is that we have sinned against that God. We believe that the penalty for sin against that God is eternal judgment in hell. And we believe that the only remedy to that problem is faith and repentance in Jesus Christ alone. Now, those might sound like the ABCs of Christianity, but here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that most of us don't live as if those are real that we may claim fidelity to those truths, but the question is, are we walking according to those truths? Let's just think about how those truths might impact some of these implications. So the Joshua Project is a group that reports on Christian statistics, a worldwide dynamics of how, the, just basically data on how many Christians there are in the world. So they would re- report that there are 8 billion people in the world. Those 8 billion people within those, there are 17,000 people groups. A people group is a distinct people based on culture and language. Of those 17,000 people groups, 7,391 of them would be considered unreached, which translates into 3.4 billion people in our world are unreached. Now, an unreached people group is a people group that has less than 2% of its members as evangelical Christians meaning there's not enough Christians to adequately share or to, to, uh, to evangelize their own people group. So 7,391 people groups unreached, 3.4 billion people unreached. Now that doesn't mean that the other 4.6 billion people in the world are saved, are Christians, but what it means is for those 4.6 billion people, they have heard of Jesus They have enough Christians around them that they know a Christian personally. They know where they could go and find a church if they wanted to learn more. They at least have an awareness or an opportunity to hear the name of Jesus. But for the 3.6 billion, 3.4 billion unreached people in our world, what it means for them is they have never heard the name of Jesus in their life. They don't know a Christian personally. And they will be born will live and die having never heard the gospel. They're unreached. Let's take India, for example. India has 1.4 billion people in its population. Of the 7,391 unreached people groups, 2,100 of them are in India, which means 95% of India is unreached. We believe and have fidelity to John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No no one comes to the Father except through me. What is the implication of that belief? It's that 95% of India will be born, will be raised to worship the millions of false gods of Hinduism, and will die never once hearing the name of Jesus Christ. are you walking according to that truth? In our church, I think a lot of us have fidelity to the truth, but are all of our priorities, all of our decisions, all of our ambitions, are they shaped by the truth that we claim to have fidelity to? For the sake of the name Gaius supported missionaries because he was overwhelmed by the beauty of Jesus and overwhelmed by the need for the gospel to go out. Why would Mark and Amanda endure the hardships for the sake of the name? Why would you embrace a vision to leverage all of your resources, all of your life for the advancement of the gospel, for the sake of the name? This is what fuels gospel patronage. Now what happens when you're a gospel patron? What was the result of Gaius being a gospel patron? Look at verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we can be co workers with the truth. What was the result of him being a gospel patron? He had the joy of being a co worker with these missionaries, he was a co worker in the truth. He was a partner. He got to share in their joy, their joy in the missionary task. And what they got to see God do and accomplish was Gaius' joy. He was a coworker with them in the truth. Here's one of the realities when you observe the history of the Bible and the history of the church. Whenever God raises up a laborer for the gospel, he simultaneously raises up a gospel patron to support that mission. Gaius got to be a coworker. He got to share in the joy of their mission. Two years ago, I went and got to visit Indy Bible Church over in Independence. It's a great church led by Pastor Mike Nimmers. It's a smaller congregation that's a little older, but for years now, they have financially supported our salt company. And I went a couple of years ago to preach and give them an update of what was going on in our ministry, took a couple students with me. And before the service, I was talking to a woman, her name was Robin. And Robin's here, she's asking me, hey, tell me about students who've given their life to Christ this year. Tell me about the church plans. Tell me about uh, sending on missions. Tell me about the discipleship. She's just hearing and asking me all these questions about salt. And eventually she stops me and she just goes, wow, heaven is gonna be so awesome for you guys at salt. And I looked at her and I said, Robin, heaven is going to be so awesome for you because you're our partner. Our joy is your joy. And it's like a light bulb went off for her, where she realized as our gospel patron, all of our joy in reaching students, she got to share in that joy. This is the incredible opportunity that your prosperity gives you. You could be a co-worker in any Christian mission you wanted. I'm about to make the worst Mankato pitch, recruitment pitch of all time. Do you realize you don't have to go to Mankato with us to share in the joy of what God is gonna do there? You can stay. In fact, we need a lot of you to stay so that you can send us in a manner worthy of the Lord. Do you realize that you don't have to go with Logan and Maddie Swaim or Dustin and Kelsey Baglow or Paige Cowing or the Jacksons or the Thompsons or start working for TTI in order to share in the joy of what God is going to do through them. All that's required is that you invest and be involved in a mission of another to proclaim the gospel. And you are a coworker in the truth. All of their joy is your joy. All that they get the privilege to see God do, you get to share in that as a gospel patron. This is the opportunity that our prosperity affords us. Will you leverage your prosperity for the advancement of the gospel? So where do you start? Well, very simply, you could start by giving to your church family. At Candeo, you saw in the program last week that 20 cents out of every single dollar given to Candeo goes straight to local missions, campus missions, church planting, and international missions. If you've given a dollar to Candeo, you are a gospel patron. Congratulations. It's awesome. That's a great starting place. We as elders do everything we can to to steward your finances in a way that honors God so that we can continue to send in a manner worthy of the Lord. So start there. Maybe you want to go above and beyond that. Maybe you get really excited about church planting here in the States to reach college students. Great. You can be a coworker in the truth. You can be a gospel patron for any one of our church plants. Maybe you get really excited about international missions. Great. Great. Get to know a missionary. Invite them over while they're still here. Send them messages. Send them birth, pray for them. Support them financially. Be a gospel patron for a missionary and become a coworker in their mission. Maybe you get really excited about churches being planted in the most hard to reach places of our world, in the most unengaged, unreached people groups out there. Well, here's all you have to do. This year, save $1.09 a day. And after a year, take that $400 that you saved and make a financial gift to the Timothy Initiative. And you will have the joy of personally planting a church through their organization. You as an individual or your family, you could plant a church this year with a $400 gift to the Timothy Initiative. What an incredible opportunity our prosperity has given us. That we could leverage all of our resources for gospel advancement, it's incredible. This is why Gaius was a gospel patron. This is what the result was for him and his patronage. Now, 3 John shifts at this point and it's almost like John gives Gaius a decision a decision as he presents two other men to him and basically asks the question, whose example are you gonna follow, Diotrephes or Demetrius? Let me read verses nine through 12. It says this, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. This is why if I come, I will remind him of the works he is doing, slandering us with malicious words. He is not satisfied with that, He not only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Everyone speaks well of Demetrius, even the truth itself, and we also speak well of him. And you know that our testimony is true. Gaius, whose example are you gonna follow? Are you gonna be swayed and intimidated by the example of Diotrephes? Or are you gonna be motivated and inspired by the example of Demetrius? What's going on with Diotrephes? Diotrephes is slandering John and the apostles. He's not welcoming and supporting missionaries who are traveling. And not only that, he's excommunicating faithful believers who are coming alongside these missionaries and supporting them. Why? What is going on with him? Well, we get the clue in verse nine. Verse nine. Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them. He was self-absorbed. In his self-exaltation, and his vanity, he not only is withholding support, but he's even discouraging and excommunicating faithful believers who are supporting missionaries. This is the trap of self-centeredness. This is the trap of self-absorption. This is the trap of self-exaltation. And it's the same trap that will prevent you from being a gospel patron, self-exaltation. That instead of seeing your prosperity as an opportunity for kingdom impact, you would look at your prosperity through the lens of self-centeredness and see it as an opportunity for self-exaltation. The number one thing that will prevent you from being a gospel patron is the self centered view of your money and resources. That you would idolize pleasure. That you would seek after and to be obsessed with the false security of an investment portfolio. That you would see all of your resources as a means to self exaltation. It's what prevented Diotrephes from being a gospel patron. Now, there is nothing wrong. And in fact, it's encouraged to wisely steward our finances to have savings, to have retirements. God even permits us to enjoy his gifts. But our first priority should be, how do we use our prosperity for gospel impact? As I steward what God has given to me wisely, how do I leverage this for kingdom impact? Diotrephes looked through through the lens of self-centeredness and he forfeited having an eternal investment by seeking after what was temporary. Demetrius, on the other hand, was a man of faithfulness. Even truth itself testified to his faithfulness. Those around him saw, and Gaius is encouraged to follow his example. Will you be swayed and intimidated by diatrophies? Will you follow in his footsteps of self-centeredness and vanity? Or because of your vision of God, will you follow in the footsteps of of Demetrius. We have the opportunity to leverage our prosperity for gospel advancement. For the sake of the name, will you become a gospel patron? Will you invest and be involved in the mission of others to proclaim Jesus? Will you be so moved by the beauty of who he is that you would leverage everything in your life for his sake through the ministry of others? There's an incredible story in history of a man who did this that arguably had one of the greatest impacts of all time as a gospel patron, at least top five. And his name was Humphrey Monmouth. Most of us are unfamiliar with that name, Humphrey Monmouth. Well, Humphrey Monmouth in 1523 went to hear a preacher who had just come to London and he wanted to hear him preach, so he went there. Humphrey Monmouth was a cloth merchant, a businessman, and one of the more successful ones in London. So he goes and hears this preacher, meets him afterwards and learns that this preacher is William Tyndale. So he goes the second time to hear William Tyndale preach and takes him out to dinner afterwards, and William Tyndale begins to share with Humphrey Monmouth his frustration that he hasn't been able to get funding for his English translation of the New Testament. Monmouth was shocked at this because translating into, the Bible into English or any language other than Latin at the time was illegal, and you could be labeled as a heretic and, and, ex, and executed. But Tyndale said, no, I believe that if we can give the common people the Bible in their own language, that we could restore Christianity back to its core of faith alone in Jesus. Monmouth was convinced and he said, I will support you in this. So for the next six months, Tyndale lived in Monmouth's house. Monmouth supplied everything that Tyndale needed for his his New Testament translation work fed him, clothed him, supplied him all with all his financial leads. He'd lodged there. And after six months, it was time for Tyndale to move on. So Monmouth sends him to Wittenberg, Germany, to meet up with the other reformers, to Luther who had been working on a German translation. And there, uh, Tyndale was there for a year and he completed his New Testament translation. So then they sent him up to Cologne, which was a port city so that they could distribute the New Testament. But there he was raided by the police. He fled to the Rhine of Worms. And by 1526, Tyndale now had 3,000 copies of his New Testament translation. Monmouth, who had been supporting him the entire time, then utilized his fleets of ships as a merchant trader. (laughs) He smuggled the New Testaments into London. And exactly what they hoped happened, the English Reformation was sparked through the English New Testament. The Bibles were being distributed and very quickly as the church of England began to feel that they were losing power, they labeled Tyndale as a heretic. They learned of Monmouth's involvement. They arrested Monmouth and put him in the Tower of England for 12 months. Tyndale at the time was hiding in Belgium, continuing to work on the Old Testament translation. They'd taken the New Testament through five prints at this point. Monmouth gets out. And then Tyndale is betrayed by a merchant and is arrested. And after 16 months in the Vilvador prison, Tyndale is led out to the center of the city where there's a wooden beam. Tyndale is secured to the beam. He is chained to it, tied to it with rough ropes. They begin packing thatch and brushwood at his feet. And as Tyndale realizes, these are my last moments, he shouts, God, open the eyes of the king. And to prevent him from saying anything else, the executioner tightened the noose and strangled him to death. They then lit his body on fire. A few weeks later, Monmouth got a letter while in London and it says, after 16 months in prison, William Tyndale is dead. This was now 14 years after their dinner in 1523. Monmouth would only live for another year after Tyndale died but the two of them together in their partnership changed the world. We wouldn't have this if it hadn't been for his gospel patronage. In fact, two years later, the king of England, God's, Tyndale's prayer was answered. The king of England ordered that there would be an English Bible in every church in England. And 75 years later, King James authorized the translation work of the King James Bible, which carried over 80 to 90% of Tyndale's work. The King James Bible is the most influential book in English of all time in human history. Monmouth and Tyndale, through their partnership, changed the world. They changed the church. Would God raise up Monmouths and Gaiuses and Robins for our generation? that we would be so captivated by who Jesus is that we would leverage everything in our life for that which is eternal and not be distracted by that which is temporary. Would we leverage our prosperity for gospel advancement? Let's pray. God, that is our prayer, that we wouldn't see our prosperity as a curse, that we wouldn't see our prosperity as a means to self-exaltation, but we would see our prosperity as an opportunity, an extraordinary opportunity to fund gospel movements. God, we pray every day at 1002 that you would raise up laborers for the harvest. Would we also pray and be the sort of people that are also raised up to support those laborers and their mission for you. God, help us to leverage our prosperity for your sake. God, would we be captivated by who Jesus is and would it move us to leverage everything in our life for you? Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.